Today I have two guests in Fritanke's podcast. It's it's actually Professor of Philosophy Torbjörn Tenscher and Professor of Bioethics Peter Singer. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure Thank to you. be with you. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, I know that you, you have known each other for quite a few years, but what brought you together now in winter Stockholm, December 2021? Yeah, I, I'm entirely to blame for that. I mean, yeah. it's because of prize I won from the, the, the Swedish Council on bioethics, mm-hmm. uh, where I was allowed to arrange with the conference uh, effortless, as I said. It's rare for for an academician not being forced to bother with practicalities. And so I could mm-hmm. just t- say uh, who should be invited, and they invited them. And, and Peter here, of course, was my first choice to this seminar. So that's why Peter is here in Stockholm right now. Yeah. I was very honored to be chosen to be invited for this. And also uh, you were able to find a time when um, when I could do it, uh, which mm. I, I really appreciate. Uh, so. It's, it was a great ple- pleasure to participate in this uh, special conference about Torbjorn's work, specifically the work about uh, resource allocation in healthcare mm. and uh, in the situation of the pandemic, of course, that's been a, a very current and important debate. So I was really pleased to be able to come here and take part in that session. So, so okay, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. What are the bioethical issues in a pandemic time? I mean, if you define the major problems of ethics here. <laughs> well, in my opening statement, yeah. I, I defined some problems I wanted to be, be solved during this conference, so to speak. And of course, one basic one is where, how priorities should be set in a situation where, where, where there are not uh, ventilators enough mm. for everyone. And so who, sh- who should be Uh, catered to who should be left behind. Uh, So there are principles uh, that uh, suggest answers to these questions. And we have a special situation in Sweden where where, where we had... uh, we have regulation, state regulation from the parliament, which seems to contradict uh, practice and, and... I would say, uh, common sense and, and also uh, suggestions from, from the National Board of Healthcare and, and, uh, and uh, social sciences. No, social services, I think it's called. Mm. Uh, going in, in a more utilitarian direction, so to speak, so to speak what, what mm-hmm. it's required that we, that we should really flip a coin if a young and an old person compete for the same resource. So, I mean, that is perhaps the main problem, I think, because it it also relates to how we, re- uh, how we distribute resources in more ordinary circumstances as well. Yeah, that was the issue that I focused on in the presentation that I did with um, my co-author, Katarzyna de Lazari Radek, who's mm. a, a Polish philosopher. Um, so uh, we were particularly concerned to uh, support the idea that we should make decisions not simply that save lives but that actually save life years so that people with a greater life expectancy would get uh, priority over people with a shorter life expectancy. And uh, we wanted to push back against some ideas which 
say that you, everybody must be treated equally, as as Torbjorn just said, that you know you would have to flip a coin in certain cases where where clearly you would do more good if you didn't flip a coin, but you chose the person who had either the expectation of living longer or perhaps the person who, let's say the scarce resource is a, a bed in the ICU or a ventilator, um, who would need that ventilator for a shorter time so that the ventilator might uh, save several lives, whereas if you put somebody else on the ventilator who was predictably going to need it for a longer time, mm. it might only save one life. So we wanted those kinds of factors to be taken into account, whereas some bioethicists appeal to this idea that it's a violation of human dignity if you give priority to somebody because of some of their characteristics, um, like their age or um, other factors that, that might affect their quality of life. Okay, so, so what you're saying is that the Swedish position is to flip a coin, basically. I mean, the legal position, ah, okay. the, the decision made by the parliament ah. indicates that that's what you're supposed mm. to do. But, but of course, that's, I mean, no sane person would do that uh, in the ward. And, and, and there was also support for a different uh, idea. But, but they, those uh, uh, directions came under strong um, criticism, of course, by people believing in the dignity doctrine and they and, and you had this seminar on this uh, the other day and yes. and you did you have people there opposing to that opposing to your view here yes yes indeed i mean what are the arguments uh, well it's boiled down very much to this i mean i think there are two ideas one one is this idea about dignity uh, where I argued that we, they could really do without it because they have more more clear normative views that could be expressed without reference to dignity. And, mm -hmm. and, and then I think one idea is this, which is also called the equity view, that everyone uh, should give an equal chance of being saved uh, mm -hmm. when, when life is at stake. And I think that's a hopeless idea, really. It makes sense in some uh, restricted settings where you have two people competing for the same resource and, and there is no medical or other differences between them. But, but uh, it leads to absurd consequences mm -hmm. if, if you sacrifice many people in order to to maintain the equal chances for everyone to be, be saved, for example, or, 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 or when, I mean, the example that Peter just gave about uh, um, how you priori set priorities in, mm -hmm. the, in the ICU context. Well, well, we certainly did have um, people taking a different view. We had uh, Dr. Lara Palazzini from Italy, who's a member of the Italian National Bioethics Committee. She was online rather than in person. Um, but she was defending the view that we shouldn't make these distinctions and uh, on the basis of uh, human dignity, as, as she put it, as, as Torbjorn just said. Maybe you could have restated that argument without that concept, but I think the fact that people do state it in terms of human dignity um, is really a kind of a secular version of the idea that human beings are made in the image of God or... Um, something of that sort that uh, that that we are all special in a way that um, no other non-human animal is special mm. um, and that that somehow is something that overrides these other practical characteristics as you know how many years can you expect to live mm. um, are you 
severely demented so that you wouldn't really enjoy your life consciously even if you did live. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of this belief in human dignity becomes, uh, as I say, like a, a secular way of putting this idea that, well, you still have an immortal soul, you're still made in the image of God, mm. um, and, and therefore we must treat you equally. I must ask you, Peter, I mean, uh, I mean, Sweden is, is a fairly secular country, but you, you teach at Princeton in America, and uh, as we all know, there are quite strong conservative religious Christian groups there. How are they reacting when you talk about these things? Well, when I first came to Princeton in 1999, there were uh, strong protests from people about my appointment. Um, some of them were disability groups who mm -hmm. didn't like my views about parents having the option of euthanasia if they gave birth to a severely disabled newborn infant. Um, some of them were religious groups, of course, uh, Catholics and other Christians. Uh, and there was also opposition from one of the Princeton Board of Trustees Um, Steve Forbes, who at the time was running for the Republican nomination for president, um, which eventually went to George W. Bush. He didn't get it anyway. But <laughs> he attacked me, I think, because he was himself liable for being attacked by people who said, hey, you're on the board of trustees and you didn't stop the appointment of this person who you know, is such a, a radical um, that he not only believes in uh, abortion but also in euthanasia um, and even euthanasia for severely disabled newborns. Mm -hmm. so, um, so he was one of my critics. Um, but the, after I'd been there for a few months, that all calmed down and mm -hmm. uh, those protests went away. Um, There are there are some conservatives at Princeton who hold these views, but um, they're a relatively small number. I think the American academic life, particularly in the elite universities, uh, is much more on the liberal side of issues like abortion, um, and mm. generally on the Democrat side rather than the Republican side. If you go to some places in southern states, of course, you you might get different views, or in the Midwest, mm -hmm. but um, But not not at Princeton. So I I don't really have any problems with teaching these issues. But one one could think that you might have more problems today because of the the emerge of cancelling culture in America, where they sort of say that students should not be offended by controversial ideas. But but you haven't experienced that yourself. Not really. I think to the extent that I have, it is um, from people who are concerned uh, that people with disability might be troubled by what I say about allowing parents to opt for ending the life of the severely disabled newborn um, because they feel that that may have the implication for other disabled people that it would have been better if they were killed. Um, that's not my view. Um, my, you know, Certainly anybody who's capable of making that decision for themselves, I fully respect the autonomous decision that they make. Um, but I think... You know, I, I do think in general that infants have a different moral status from those later mm -hmm. people who can make choices about their life. And that the difference between terminating a pregnancy because you've had prenatal diagnosis and it shows that your child will have a disability, um, and most people, most, most Americans too, will terminate a pregnancy if they're told that their child will have a serious disability. Um, and in my view, the difference between doing that during pregnancy and doing it immediately after birth is a 
not not a great morally significant difference because in both cases you have somebody who's not really aware of their situation hasn't really got their life started in a biographical sense mm-hmm. um, and so really my view is more about the status of the infant than it is about um, the idea that disability is always a terrible thing mm-hmm. um, which you know sometimes it may be sometimes it may not be mm-hmm. Torbjörn have you experienced the cancel culture in Sweden recently? No, not recently. I mean, I, I was a bit amazed when I got this prize from, from this uh, mm-hmm. uh, institution because when I started out my career in, in bioethics in, in public in 1989, mm. uh, then, of course, I was threatened uh, uh, by, by the leader of the uh, Christian Democratic Party, Al Svensson. Mm. He wanted me sacked, really. For I, I had a position as associate professor at um, practice <laughs> philosophy at Stockholm University, and he wanted me sacked. Mm. Uh, and also when Peter has been visiting us uh, earlier on, there have been problems. Mm-hmm. At one, uh, I think it was in the late 90s, where, where, the, where the speaker of the parliament refused you to, to enter the premises of the Swedish parliament. Really? Right. Yes, we were yes. going to have a meeting within the Swedish yeah, parliament yes. and then we had to move it outside. Yeah, you had to move uh, it wow, outside. who was the speaker of the parliament? Uh, Birgitta Dahl. Oh, wow, that's... Okay. Yeah, so, so, I mean, there has been strong attempts at cancelling me also, but, but, but now I got a prize from the same mm. guys that, that wanted me then to... to Uh, to not be around. So, so I, I think it's been a huge progress in, in that sense. Uh, we have a much more open, I think, intellectual uh, situation now, at least with regard to that kind of sensitive topics that Peter and I have been discussing. There might be other examples now today. But yeah, where, I mean, when I speak... The counseling culture is more... Yeah, more, th- that's what I hear from yeah. academics in Sweden, that there are topics that, like transgender issues or uh, um, <clears throat> biological gender differences, uh, that is not accepted uh, to discuss Uh, openly, uh, you, you have to have a trigger warning, or or using certain words uh, is have to be yes, trigger yes. warned yeah. and so on. Yeah, so maybe they just not, not only using certain words because that might be reasonable. I don't think you should call anyone a negro or so if it's no, uh, that's if, not what I mean. But but, but, there but, was... but the mention of the word. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. Distinction between use exactly. and mention is okay, important. Yeah, true, true, true. Yeah. Not even the mention no, of this word with quotation marks. Uh, yeah, so yes, to speak. because no. there was this case in Uppsala where they discussed how to search old text yeah. texts for racist yeah. expressions yeah. and you had to use the words in the teaching of how to search the archives on <laughs> yeah. the, and that was uh, that was um, objections crazy. from yeah. the students yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, that's right there there was a actually the one incident that in Princeton that happened like that was that there was a professor who was teaching uh, a course which was about um offense and language and things like that. And he used the N-word several times. He said things like, well, would you rather be called a N-word or be punched in the face? But he actually used the word rather than okay, what right. I just did, right? Um, and he did this several times and some students said, would you stop doing this? And he said, well, it's part of the point of the course that I'm trying to get you to see to what extent you know, a, a verbal thing causes offense as compared with physical violence, for instance. Um, But the students all objected uh, to this, and mm. some of them marched out. 
Uh, he was actually, you know, and then it became discussed in the university. He was supported by the president of the university, who said, "Look, you know, this may be offensive, but we respect freedom of speech." But the uh, the lecturer himself decided that um, he didn't want to continue the course. That uh, the atmosphere of the course in which the course was to be taught was now going to be too too poisoned, if you like, um, and so he cancelled the course. But isn't this a problem for the academic freedom? Well, I think it can be a problem, yes, and I, I think you know there are certainly circumstances in which it it has inhibited. Mm. But speaking. on the other hand, I think it's sometimes a healthy phenomenon, even even if those who protest are wrong. Uh, often, uh, if, if handled in a uh, in an appropriate way, I think it could you could learn something from these confrontations and mm-hmm. so. I, I remember the seventies; we had those mm. uh, conflicts uh, again, and the left-wing persons uh, objected to. to to, to, for example, to, to analytical philosophy, it's bourgeois and reactionary. Yeah. They you were part of that, weren't you? No, no, I wasn't because I was always an analytical philosopher. Okay, but, but yeah, you were part of the well, left-wing movement. I was part of the left oh, movement. Yeah. yeah, I'm still. Yeah, you're still part yeah. of the left-wing movement. But, yeah. but, but uh, then Lars Bergström, as you know, my, my predecessor, uh, yeah. very cleverly arranged with a seminar where we discussed whether analytic philosophy is bourgeois and reactionary or not. And then he wrote uh, down this thesis, it is, um, analytic philosophy is bourgeois and reactionary. And mm. then he asked us to, to make more precise mm-hmm. <laughs> this claim. Wonderful. <laughs> and the seminar went on uh, during, during uh, a semester and, and uh, most of the people had protested either uh, uh, just deserted philosophy or became more interested in the subject than in a more sensible way. So, I think yeah. often, often it should be met in this uh, spirit. Yeah, it can be, but, but my experience, and you know, again, this is a relatively minor incident, but um, my experience is that people don't want to discuss it. The people, so I was at a, a dinner of students. There's like a, a discussion group of students who meet over dinner. Maybe there was... 20 students in the room and um, I was introducing a topic which was about exactly this about freedom of discussion and it did move to look at uh, transgender issues Um, and I raised the question about the fact that um, in some countries now the United Kingdom is one example um, if you say that you're a woman you sign a declaration then legally you are a woman Mm. and the one consequence of this has been that there have been people in women's prisons who have a physically unaltered, characteristically male body. In other mm. words, they have uh, testes and a penis. Mm. Um, and there have been claims, and I'm not sure how well they're supported, that this has increased the amount of sexual assaults occurring in women's prison, mm-hmm. which, you know, given that these people are in prisons is is not a very surprise. It wouldn't be a surprising fact if no. it is true. As I say, it does need to be documented. So there was one uh, woman in that room who was offended by this discussion even because it was questioning. I suppose she saw it as questioning the idea that self-ID is enough to change gender. And uh, after the meeting, she wrote to the president of the organisation and said she wasn't going to attend any more meetings. So, you know, when that happens, it's, it's a pity and, and then you don't have the learning experience that you would have by having that discussion. Yeah, I mean, there are situations where you fail completely, but, yeah. but, 
But I think you shouldn't be too, too concerned with this. I mean, it's natural mm-hmm. that there are conflicts. And, but the concern... and sometimes they are irrational also, but, but yeah, but don't I'm, try to rationalize them. But I mean, <laughs> the concern might not be re- uh, relevant when it comes to the reactions of the students, but the concern is relevant when it comes to the reactions of the... Uh, of the, the, the what you call it the the, ch- the chair of the yes, university yes, if yes. they don't dare to deal with yeah, it that mm. is if a they problem. just sort that of say okay okay yeah. we stop this yeah. course or yeah. whatever uh, we cancel this person that's mm. the problem isn't it oh yeah it is a problem but you have to try to defeat also such yeah. structures I think yeah judging from but my I own know, experience yes Peter you mentioned earlier today in our seminar that in America. Some person, maybe you should tell that story. Some person who wanted to be trans race instead mm. of transgender that created a lot of reactions, and it's still in in a philosophical sense the same thing. Well, um, I'll tell the story. Whether yeah, yeah, it is do, do, a, do. in the philosophical sense the same thing or not is, of course, what's up for debate. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yes, there was a, a woman called Rachel Dolezal who worked for um, an organization that was helping. Uh, African Americans, um, and she identified herself as African American. There were some things about her appearance which you know, made that somewhat plausible. Um, but it was then later shown that she had no African American ancestry, um, and she was vilified for having identified as African American. Um, and the vilification came from essentially the same people who politically would say that if somebody who has a biologically male body um, identifies as a woman, then they are a woman um, and you you are, would be wrong to question their uh, being a woman and that would be uh, a threat to their identity and naturally very upsetting for them. Um, so there was an article published um, by a philosopher, young young philosopher called Rebecca Tuval, mm. who um, just raised the question as to why is it that transracialism is regarded as wrong, whereas transgender is regarded as fine, and so 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 much so that it shouldn't even be questioned. Um, <clears throat> and that article itself was then attacked. It was published in a feminist journal called Hypatia, um, uh, and about 800 academics um, signed a letter calling it uh, on the editors to retract the paper. Um, and saying that it shouldn't have been published. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of personal attacks uh, that uh, Tuval suffered and she feared that her career might uh, be at an end because of the opposition to, mm. to her article. Fortunately, that didn't happen, but uh, it was a very disturbing experience for But her. they didn't retract it? No, the editor refused to retract it, but actually there was then a move to change the whole editorial board and the editor and I think that did happen at the journal so <laughs> although the journal the article was never officially retracted mm-hmm. um, it certainly had consequences for the running of the journal and this is the reason why you and some others started the journal of controversial ideas <laughs> right that's correct that was one of the incidents there were a number of others but that was one of the incidents that led us to think that um, we should provide a forum for articles that are well argued, that are rigorous, where the evidence um, stands up, um, that pass through the normal academic peer review process, mm-hmm. um, but that the authors would not want to put their name to. Um, 
Or sometimes, that even if the authors did put their name, the editors of journals would not want to publish because they were too controversial. So we set up this uh, open access journal called the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which anybody can find online by going to journalofcontroversialideas.org. Um, and we have published uh, one issue so far of uh, 10 articles, which three were published under a pseudonym, mm-hmm. um, which... Um, might not other, otherwise have been published. At least some of them, I'm sure, would not otherwise have been published, either because the author wouldn't want to put their name to it or because an editor wouldn't want to publish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we hope to continue that and to provide a forum where people can publish things that would otherwise be too controversial or that they wouldn't want to publish under their own name. And you, you on the editorial board, you know who wrote these articles? Uh, and not in all cases. No. No. I mean, well, no. I've reviewed for the journal. I, yeah. I, 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 it was not revealed to me the, uh-huh. the, the identity of the authors. Yeah, uh-huh. but and and in I think of the three that was published, there was certainly at least one where none of us on the editorial board either know the name. Mm-hmm. So you can only judge it by its actual quality of the yes, argument. That's right, so that's, that's, but that's, that's fine, right. isn't it? I that's mean, fine. In a way, I mean, I, I published with my name on it also. That is also uh, allowed. I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. So, Tobin, mm-hmm. you published in this journal as well? Yeah, in this first issue as well. Perhaps it was, I mean, perhaps it was a way of cheating. I, I suppose <laughs> I could have published that. Uh, article in some other journal. It wasn't that controversial. (laughs) What was it about? uh, Global heating, uh, the future of humanity, Mm -hmm. uh, global despotism, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, lifeboat ethics as a last exit for uh, last way of avoiding exit of of our species. Mm -hmm. So there were many of those ideas are controversial, of course, but not that controversial that Mm. they couldn't have appeared. Oh, we thought it belonged in the journal. We were happy to to have it. (laughs) Okay, let me ask you both a little bit more personal questions. I mean, you both have had long and are having long careers in philosophy. What brought you into philosophy in the first place? Why why did you become a philosopher? Who wants to start? (laughs) I I can start if you like. Um, Yeah, sure. It was actually an interesting series of accidents for me. Um, I, I want, so firstly, I'm not sure how it is in Sweden, but in Australia, if you want to do law or medicine, you do it straight out of high school. You don't like in America, do an undergraduate bachelor's degree first. Mm -hmm. So when I finished high school, um, I applied to, to do law at university because my older sister, um, had done law and it seemed interesting. Um, She also, her then boyfriend, her later husband, um, was also a lawyer. So um, I applied to do law and uh, I was accepted by the law faculty, but I saw a university counsellor, which was then the the practice, uh, somebody from the law faculty. And he looked at my academic record and he saw that I had done well in subjects like literature and history. There was no philosophy taught in high school then. and he said, you might find the law degree a little bit narrow. Why don't you combine it with an arts degree? You can do an arts law degree, Bachelor of Arts as well as Bachelor of Law, and it only takes a, a year or so longer. Um, so I thought, yes, that sounds interesting, so I'll do that. So then I had to decide what I wanted to major in in, um, in the undergraduate degree. Uh, you, do t- t- you can do two subjects that you want to w- work in. And history was one of them because I'd enjoyed that and, and 
done well in it. But um, my sister's boyfriend had studied some philosophy as well, and um, I talked to him about philosophy, and that sounded interesting, and I knew very little about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I knew that I enjoyed a good argument. Maybe that was why I was wanting to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, fine, I'll do philosophy. So, What age were you in at that, that time? Uh, 18. 18, okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I started doing philosophy, and um, I did enjoy that, and I did well in it. Uh, so when I finished my BA, um, which was before I'd finished my law degree, uh, I was offered a scholarship to do a, a master's degree uh, mm-hmm. in, in that. And, um, and this was in Australia? This was in, in mm-hmm. Melbourne, that's right, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And I decided to take that. I went to talk to the law faculty and I said, can I suspend my law studies? And they said, yes, fine, you can come back to it later if you like. Um, But I completed the master's degree. I then got offered a scholarship to go to Oxford and do my graduate work there. For an Australian, that was very exciting, of course, to thought Mm. of studying in such a famous and historic Mm. place. We don't have very much history in Australia. It doesn't, (laughs) at least white history anyway, doesn't go back that far. Um, So I took that up too, and then I, you know, the story just went on from there. I did well in my Oxford studies too, and got offered a job afterwards. So I never went back to the law degree. Okay, and and interesting. And for you, Torbjorn, what was starting your interest, igniting uh, well, the flame? I, I was really interested already in high school. I, I read Bertrand Russell and, mm. and that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, and Ingmar Hedenius mm. uh, against religion and so. So I was really prepared for philosophy in a way. Uh, and then I, I thought high school was prison, like prison. And then, then when I started university, I started to study m- several subjects at once. Uh, we, we had a very free system then. You could just pick the uh-huh. courses you wanted. So, so I studied mathematics, I studied the history of literature, the history of music, uh, and philosophy altogether. But that, but that was really, there, there was a personal experience that really drew me to philosophy. Uh-huh. And that, I, I told this story, I think, many times. But, but, tell it again. But I, I'll tell it again. It, it, my father uh, was uh, ill. It, it turned out he had a very aggressive liver cancer um, when I was in my late teens. And it soon turned out that, that, that uh, he would only survive for a few additional months and so uh, And he took this with, with, with um, I mean... In the best manner you could, uh, he tried to finalize his life and so in many mm. ways. But then it turned out that it, it was so terrible, this disease. It, it hurt so mm. enormously. So eventually he died in, in uh, what you call uh, terminal uh, anguish or, or something like that. Uh, uh, and on the way there, he asked his doctor for help to die. He, mm. he, he, he wanted euthanasia, mm. but his doctor said that, no, it's, uh, even though they were friends, I can't help you. Uh, it is illegal. It, it's against uh, medical ethics, the principles mm. of medical mm. ethics. And so. So, so he died in, in, in ter- terrible pain at the very end. And, and, mm. and I had to watch this and to, together with my mother. Mm. At the same time, I was drafted for military services. Mm-hmm. And I was a pacifist then. I was already org- organized politically in a way. I was, was against the Swedish atomic bomb and so, so I, I refused to, to do my military service. Mm-hmm. And they said, then you have to go to jail because <laughs> it's mm-hmm. illegal not to kill other 
to people. be willing to kill at least. To be willing at least. I mean, yeah. to train to kill yeah. other people. I found this confusing, <laughs> absurd, really. Yeah. My father, who wanted help to die when he really needed it, they refused it because it was not only illegal but immoral. But but I was, it was, I was legally prescribed to to to, mm. to do the same to 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 kill him. Innocent, I saw, so, mm. so it uh, So that drew me to to moral mm. philosophy, mm. Uh, and uh, and since then I've struggled with this these questions. As, yeah, you well have. As you, uh, mm. And we mentioned Jonathan Glover, a common friend who wrote this influential book, uh, "Causing uh, Death and Saving Lives," uh, that inspired me also later on. And, um, Jonathan Glover, yes, a philosopher. Uh, where is, where is he, he? Was he was at Oxford? I think yeah. he must be retired by now. He oh, was okay. then in London. But, yeah, that's now right. he's, he went oh, now he's retired. Yeah. He's, he's even older than we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But he. Okay. But he was an inspiration. That, that book was a huge ins- yeah. inspiration. Uh, I remember reading your book, uh, Torbjörn. Um, what was it called? Then du skall understund om döda. Yes. In Swedish. Yes. First in Swedish. Then it exists now. Uh, as a, What's the English title? The English title is uh, uh, the. Uh, Taking life, oh, yeah. the ethics of killing. Right, I know that. But yeah, okay, yeah, you know, but, but the Swedish title is better because yeah, it's it's, better. it's, it's um, referring to the um, the the God. Uh, thou shall not kill, oh, thou right. and not it's kill. it's not it's it's thou, thou shall sometimes thou, kill. Thou shalt sometimes right. kill. Thou shalt really sometimes kill. The best translation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah, so I mean that that mm. uh, then came uh, all sorts of problems in philosophy as well, of course, but but. This one has haunted me. Mm, yeah, I can understand. Yeah, I can imagine. I didn't know that about your father, which is very sad, of course. But it it is a good example of uh, why we really need to think better in in moral philosophy. Yeah. yeah. Have you had uh, some some kind of similar existential situation, Peter, that has affected your attitudes to philosophy or positions in philosophy? Um, I don't know that anything like that has really affected my positions in philosophy. Uh, I suppose um, finding out about how the animals that I was then eating, this is when I was a graduate student in at Oxford, mm. how they were being treated mm-hmm. um, and learning about conditions in factory farms, um, you could that would be the closest I could think of in yeah. terms of an experience that not only led me to change what I eat, but led me to take up this as a major issue in moral philosophy, the, the moral status of animals, which at that stage, I hadn't really thought about it very much, and I guess I had assumed, as most people did at that time, that um, no issue about animals could be anywhere near as important as uh, an issue involving humans. Mm. So I, I now think of that as just you know another example of the sort of prejudice we have against taking <laughs> seriously the interests of non-human animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that would be the closest. I mean, I, I did have the experience of my mother dec- declining through de- dementia, um, and eventually really ceasing to be, I think, a, mm. you know, a, a person at all. But that happened relatively late when I it didn't, you know, I'd already formed my views about mm. the, the fact that people should be able to choose when they want to die uh, before that happened. So it didn't produce a dramatic change. But you have a fascinating uh, ancestor story. Your grandfather worked with Freud. 
That's true, but yes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So my grandfather um, lived in Vienna um, and was a student of, of the classics of uh, Latin and Greek. He taught Latin and Greek at a, a high-level academic high school in Vienna. And he attended some early lectures that Freud gave um, at the University of Vienna uh, and then wrote to Freud suggesting that he might like to apply his psychoanalytic techniques to uh, some of the myths of ancient Greece and, and Rome or perhaps to some of the folk stories of uh, the cultures uh, around Europe, particularly southeastern Europe. Uh, and Freud welcomed this uh, suggestion and uh, invited him to come and talk to him um, and uh, suggested he join the Wednesday Circle, which was a, a discussion group of about 20 people that met in Freud's rooms. And uh, they did then begin work on this paper, uh, in which my grandfather supplied the raw material, the folk stories, um, and Freud psychoanalyzed them. But uh, Freud did not publish the paper at the time because my grandfather sided with Alfred Adler mm. in the split that occurred uh, between Adler and Freud about how to understand psychoanalysis. Mm. Uh, my grandfather thought Freud was abominably authoritarian in suppressing any different ideas from his own. And so he, he joined with Adler. And none of the group uh, who joined with Adler um, were ever... Uh, spoken to by Freud again. So my grandfather wasn't. The paper was in my grandfather's possession, uh, it appears. Um, and uh, it survived my grandparents' deportation during the Nazi period to Theresienstadt. Um, and my grandfather died there, but my grandmother survived, uh, returned to Vienna and retrieved the paper, which she must have given to one of her non-Jewish friends. Mm -hmm and brought it out to Australia. Uh, eventually, it was drawn to the attention through my aunt of the Freud archive in New York, and they published it then as a, initially as a separate volume, but now that paper is included within the Freud mm. uh, collected works. Mm. Did, you, um, uh, did you get to know your grandmother? I mean, she lived long enough for that? I was nine when she died, so I got to know her, of course. I knew she was a warm and loving person, but I did not have intellectual conversations no. with her. My, my sister, who was six years older, uh, did come closer to that. Um, mm. My grandmother was actually a mathematician. She was, mm -hmm. um, she was only the third woman to graduate in maths and sciences from the University of Vienna. Wow. Um, and something like the, the 30th or 35th female graduate at all from the university. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually an interesting story about her with relation to women. Um, she was the best mathematics student of her class and the best student traditionally received a ring from the emperor, uh, Franz Josef, um, you know, an engraved ring with a prize. But um, no woman had ever before received this honour and it went to the Ministry of Education who said that the prize can only be given to a man. So she did not receive the prize. <laughs> Incredible. Mm -hmm. Incredible. So, but you never got to ask her how Freud was to talk mm. with. No. <laughs> At the age of nine, I had no idea about any, any of that. I'm sorry. Uh, no, but it's, it's a fascinating story. What, what's your own personal view of the psychoanalysis uh, 
theories. I mean, some people see it more like a religion than a science. I have to say that, uh, you know, having read Freud subsequently after learning about the connection, but also, I guess, out of general interest, and uh, also looking at this particular paper that um, my grandfather mm. wrote with Freud, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's science, really. I think mm. it's... Um, you know, it's a possible interpretation of why people do things, but um, it would need to be backed up with some evidence. further evidence, <laughs> and that evidence doesn't seem to be there. No. Um, and it's it's somewhat mechanical, I think, in its application of you know everything has to be traced back to neuroses that relate to sexual desires and so on. Uh, um, I, you know, uh, and Alfred Adler, who had this idea that uh, a lot of neurosis comes from a sense of inferiority, he invented the term inferiority complex. Mm. Um, you know, that's a, a reasonable idea. That's as plausible as Freud's ideas. Mm -hmm. But um, Freud basically pushed it out of the mainstream psychoanalysis. And it would have been nice to have some kind of empirical test as to whether senses of inferiority are important or mm. these uh, suppressed sexual desires are important. Um, but that was. Never done, I think. But I think Freud made one uh, scientific achievement, uh, at least, and that's local anesthesia. I didn't know that Freud yeah. discovered Did local Fro anesthesia. Really? <laughs> I didn't know no, that. No, I've heard it said by, by yeah. anesthetists. I don't know really how okay. much truth there is to, to this uh, okay. myth. But, Torben, what's, what's your view of psychoanalysis? No, I, 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 really, I haven't studied it enough mm -hmm. to, to really have a view on it. Mm -hmm. I tend to be skeptical, uh, but uh, <laughs> often you're skeptical to things that that mm. might be yeah. more interesting. Right. Than I mean, I think if we want to be fair to Freud, yeah. we could yeah. say, apart from the particular causes of neuroses, the idea that there's something unconscious going on in our motivation, mm. um, you know, Freud, that's an important thought, and mm. Freud may not have been the only one to think it, but um, he did help to promote that idea and to get mm. more people thinking about, you know, what what unconscious desires or, or urges could be leading us to make certain choices. Mm -hmm. And it's also fascinating, this idea that what you see going on here is, I mean, something very different is going on beneath it. It's also, I mean, you've written about Marx, and, and mm -hmm. it's the same idea that a phenomena can be explained by something else going on, which is more... Uh, ruthless and, and brutal in a way. So, right. so yeah. when you think you have a whole uh, philosophical seminar and search for the truth, it's just a fight, a sexual fight. Or part uh, of the, your role in the class struggle. Or yes, something. yes. Yeah. Or you're in, in the class struggle. So yeah. I, I think those ideas are, are uh, at least from a literary point of view, interesting. interesting. And I think yeah. Marx is an interesting parallel because I also don't think it's a scientific idea, right? Marx thought that he was a scientific socialist in contrast to the earlier utopian socialists like Robert Owen and Proudhon and so on. Um, but I think, you know, there was not really science in Marx either. It was a kind of transformation of the Hegelian philosophy that he got as a student um, and an interesting transformation, mm -hmm. but, um, but not a scientific account that enables you to predict the outcome of history as, as mm -hmm. we've seen. Marx's predictions have failed. Don't you think that that's some kind of... Uh, almost biological instinct that we have to to sort of have a complete a theory of everything like a theory that explains everything isn't that an, some kind of urge 
that a lot of people have, that we have as humans. Yeah, we should have it, I think. I okay. Mean, that's uh, a good point of departure. We should be self-critical about yeah, this theory. Be, yeah, really yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's right. a good point of departure when we yeah. do science, I think. Okay, well, and just one more theme that I want to just discuss with you. Fast forward now from from uh, from what we talked about to maybe the future. I mean, we have a scientific revolution in neuro neuroscience, I would say. I mean, our understanding of the brain is is developing very fast and we can we can scan the brain and see things happening. Do you do, do you think that this could lead to new ideas in moral philosophy. I'm, I mean, neurophilosophy, sort of mixing brain imaging with morali- moral dilemmas and so on. Can you learn something as a philosopher from studying the brain in that way? Uh, perhaps, I mean, you've been perhaps even deeper into this than I have been, but, but I mean, there is one application, of course, that's interesting, and, and it has to do with the debunking strategies of, of moral ideas, uh, where you use all sorts of scientific, psychological and neurological uh, resources to, to, to uh, as I see it, to sort out those ideas that you uh, could trust on, those moral intuitions that are trustworthy, that you should, if they conflict the theory, you should give up on the theory and, and you should use it as input like you do with observations in science, but but only if some of them uh, mm-hmm. are reliable in this sense. And then this science could perhaps help you to sort those who are reliable and those who are not reliable. Mm-hmm. But then you have also the meta-ethical idea here that we have to debunk every moral uh, view uh, because of those findings. Neither Peter nor I accept that uh, skeptical application of these mm-hmm. techniques but 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 at least i mean it could help us to to get rid of some of our ideas but i don't think it could ever inform us about which is the correct moral theory it's again the simple distinction here between uh, is and ought mm. uh, and human's naturalistic <laughs> fallacy yes yeah, yeah. Yes, but but I I agree. I think it's it's interesting, and you know one example you, that I have been have been involved in is uh, the the study of the trolley problem. The, yeah. the famous example where, in in one version, you are standing by a, a, a switch, um, and there's a runaway trolley or train that's going down the tracks, and it's heading for five people and will kill them, but you can throw the switch and it will kill only one. Mm. And most people, when you say, should you throw the switch, about 85% of people will say, yes, you yeah. should throw the switch. But in what seems to be in some ways a similar situation where you're, you don't have a switch but you're standing on a footbridge and, again, there's the runaway train and it's going to kill five people, but there's a very heavy person leaning over looking at the track and if you just give him a bit of a shove, he'll fall onto the track and he's so heavy that he will stop the trolley yeah. killing the five people. So again, one dies, but five don't. Yeah. But almost everybody says, no, you mustn't do that, right? You mustn't push the one mm. person. But the outcome is equal. The outcome, in both cases, you one person gets killed and five yeah. people yeah. live. And uh, so Josh Green, who was originally a philosophy PhD at Princeton when I first came to Princeton, but is now a professor of psychology at Harvard, um, had the idea of asking people about the trolley problem while taking images of their brains to see what parts of their brains were most active. And he found that in those, when you uh, asked them about the switch problem, um, 
that was mostly sort of cognitive parts, brains of the, parts of the brain involved in cognitive activities that mm. were active. But when you ask them about the Footbridge case, it was mostly um, parts of the brain that are more involved with emotional responses. Um, and he thought that, therefore, there is an explanation for this difference, mm. which is not a sort of explanation within moral philosophy that one is right and one is wrong, no. but rather is the fact that when you think about pushing someone with your hands to their death, this produces a, an emotional response, whereas when you think about throwing a switch, it doesn't. Um, and there's a possible explanation for that, and uh, we're sitting here looking at a photograph of Charles Darwin, um, <laughs> and it may be that, after all, for all of our evolutionary history, we had the possibilities of killing people with our bare hands, perhaps pushing them off cliffs, mm. but perhaps just you know, violent, physical violence. Whereas it's only for the last 100 years or two that we've had the possibility of killing people by throwing a switch. Mm. So the switch is much more neutral and allows our cognitive activities to take account of the fact, well, there's five people and then there's one people, a person, it's better that only one die. But when asked to push somebody, um, all of those uh, inherited visceral responses mm. that helped us to survive as a social group uh, from um, hundreds of thousands of years um, override the cognitive responses. Mm. So that's an example of what Torbjorn meant by um, a debunking explanation. Um, it debunks the idea that it's somehow worse to push the person off the bridge, which in any case seemed a little bit strange, but some philosophers tried to explain it and justify it. But really it may be that we don't want to justify it because it's just part of our evolutionary past and, and when we really think about the issue and a, apply our reasoning, we can see that they're parallel. Yeah, yeah. Which means also that there could be good reasons, moral reasons, to be a person who has difficulty with... with Oh, uh, yes, in general, we would general, want people I mean, to have uh, yeah, inhibitions. Yeah. So, yes, so there are good reasons true. to have that uh, yeah. response, but, but when you realise that it is uh, this kind of, of uh, quick thinking, uh, then, then um, you should perhaps lose your... your, your uh, it's not credible as, as an uh, intuition to, to build a theory on. But mm. that doesn't mean, of course, that, that the other... Uh, Reaction. If you have, I don't. Do I have that picture? Does it strike you as uh, immediately right to, to push this uh, big person, or do you share my reluctance? Yeah, my also, Look, I, th the, I think it's. I think we want people to be reluctant about pushing someone yeah, to their death. Yeah. Um, that's true, but I do think that that you know, when I think calmly about this um, in a theoretical sense, I, I think it would be the right thing to do. I think if you knew that this was the only way to save five people, and you could do it, you were the, if you were the kind of person who could do it, I think it would be the right thing. Uh, I agree, of course, but, but, uh, I wouldn't, uh, but, but I don't have an intuition here that it no, is right, I that, think, that yeah. I think could support my theory. I, when I say that it's right, I, I deduce this conclusion from, from my, yes, my utilitarian beliefs, as does uh, uh, those, I think, who, who, who no, that it would bring... Too much complication okay. <laughs> to the argument. <laughs> okay, but well, what you're saying is that you prob your intuitions would probably uh, stop you from doing it anyway, but you think rationally that it's the right thing. Uh, to the, the intuition, um, it, no, the intuition doesn't stop me from doing anything. No. That that's that the content of an intuition is proposition. Okay. This is right. This is wrong. Okay. Like the content of an okay. observation is um, this is in, in there is a proton or something like that. Uh, but 
but but my my intuition is also uh, an event of course a mental event mm. uh, and i think the mechanism here producing this mental event with this content uh, is a kind of quick thinking that we have because it in most cases it it takes us in the right direction but but now when we want to assess this thought experiment to tease mm. out which theory is the correct one mm. we can't rely on it Mm. You could compare with your fear of snakes. I mean, mm. it's it's a good idea to be to fear all snakes because some of them are poisonous. But if you want to decide whether a particular snake is poisonous or not, then then it's not a good idea to rely on this mechanism. Mm. Well, it's better to avoid all snakes than yeah, to take yeah, the yes, risk of yes, meeting yes, a poisonous. Right. But if you actually know that a snake is not poisonous, you might still have the instinctive reaction. Yeah. It's still a snake. Yeah. It still yeah. wiggles that way. You might still be fearful of it. Mm. But if you really know it's not poisonous, then it's okay if you want to examine it or pick it up <laughs> yeah. or something. Okay, uh, one final question, uh, a small question. Do you believe in free will? Small question. <laughs> <laughs> What's your position? I, I think this is the most difficult problem in philosophy, perhaps. But but I have fairly recently published an article uh-huh. uh, together with Maria Svedberg on the topic, and where we defend this uh, rather old-fashioned uh, G. Morian idea that that you have free will in the sense that had you acted different, had you decided to act differently in the situation, you would have done so. Then you could have done it. I mean, it. What does it mean that you could have acted otherwise? It means that if you had decided to act otherwise, you would have done it. Uh, this seems rather straightforward and easy to to accept, but it means, of course, that had you acted differently in this situation, and the world, and determinism is true, then either the past would have been different, or the laws of nature would have been different. So that's what you have to accept mm. when you accept this idea. But but. If you don't accept it, then take utilitarianism, for example. If we have no alternatives to our actions, then all actions are right. So much is at stake here, I think. Much is at stake. What do you say, Peter? Why, I'm not sure why you say all actions are right if we have no alternative. Generally. I mean, I mean then, I, I, then the, only, the only way of acting wrongly, I think, is to do something where you could have done something with better consequences. If that is never the case, then, then you're safe. You can't act. No. Uh, well, you could say that you can't do something wrong, but yeah. it's not the case that your actions are right. Well, well I think if an action is not wrong, then it's right. It's almost a conceptual truth, I would say, or at least I accept it in my moral so I, arguments. I, I mean, I, I would put it rather this way, that um, if your actions have good consequences, then um, those were the right actions for you to do. That doesn't mean that you deserve to be praised for them because um, you may have done them without choosing. Um, it may not have come through your choice. Uh, there may have been other influences. Um, but uh, when we think about praising or blaming the agent, then we should think about what you're talking about. What did the agent choose? Did the agent choose to do this? Why did the agent choose to do this? We might want to know about their motivations as well. Um, so we might praise them if they chose to do it because they were saving an innocent person from drowning, but then we discover that they knew that this was the child of a billionaire and that they expected to get rewarded. 
and uh, you know well, we wouldn't have done it um, otherwise. So we. I, I think I have a much more simple idea about praise and blame. Also, I, I think we should pra- praise a person if it has the best consequences of doing so. Uh, otherwise, you should not do it. So that these are just actions, uh, like other actions, praising and blaming and so. But but the, the basic problem here, whether whether an action is right or wrong, uh, seems to. Uh, I mean, it can't be wrong unless uh, there are alternatives to our actions. So can't you say free will in, uh, or free... Uh, it's not really a matter of free will, I think. It's, it's a matter of being able to act otherwise from how you do, the, that there are alternatives to your actions. If there are no, no alternatives to your, to your actions, then I think it follows from the criterion of right action that we operate with, we utilitarians, that all actions are right. But the question of what is an alternative, so because on, on, on the view that you're defending, which I'm, I'm not actually disagreeing with the view about um, free will, but, but it does follow that if you knew all the relevant facts beforehand and you knew the right laws of nature, you would be able to predict the way that you were going to act, right? the, yeah. which would mean predicting what you would choose yeah. and then predicting your action. So some people would say, if that's true, then I didn't really have an alternative. It was predetermined that I was going to make this choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that gets back to the point. You but but this notion of free will is not incompatible with this. I mean, it could still be true that if you had made another yeah. decision, you would have acted otherwise. Right. Of course, you never act otherwise from how you actually act, and that could be determined. But but still, there is room, I think, for for free action in this. In this, sense, sense. in this particular sense of even though it has these rather yeah. spectacular consequences that that it, had you acted otherwise mm-hmm. from how you did then either the past would ha- would have been different or or the laws of nature would have been different yes what's your point uh, Peter, when it comes to do we have free will so i i i also hold the view that um Freedom in the relevant sense is compatible with determinism, mm. and it is compatible with the idea that uh, a perfect knower would be able to predict how you would choose and therefore mm. what your actions would be. Um, and you know, I, th- I think this means that you you have freedom in the relevant sense, which means that you can be appropriately blamed for what you do because mm. um, that may alter your choices. I think we. Again, I don't disagree with Torbjörn's idea that praise and blame are actions that have consequences, Mm -hmm. but we appropriately praise and blame somewhere where doing that could influence their choices or their future choices or the choices of other people who are aware of praise and blame. Um, And that therefore becomes another causal factor in in how people are going to choose. Mm. Okay, but still, I would say there is a, some room for also for blameless uh, wrongdoing and for blameful right doing, and, and uh, at least I have written about yeah, such I think cases. There, there yes. are such yes. cases. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's very good. So, so Peter, you're going back to Australia now tomorrow, right? I'm now going on Monday just because of, oh. of a flight got cancelled, so okay. I couldn't make But back the, to Australia, uh, and you have summer there right now. I will have, yes, that's right. <laughs> that's wonderful. Torbjörn yeah. and I have to stick with the Swedish winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Torbjörn, Tansha, Peter Singer, thank you for being in the Fritanke podcast. It's thank been you. my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome.